0: Well, good morning. It was a pleasant surprise when we woke up this morning, right? It wasn't it beautiful? Maybe didn't enjoy driving on some of that, but the roads seemed to be melting off pretty quickly and it sure was pretty. Well, the kids are going to go out, go back with Miss Cindy today, and so if it's okay with Mom and Dad, you guys can go back to the back and get a special treat during Children's Church. For the rest of us, let's go to our God in prayer father in heaven we we thank you for being a god who loves us for being a god who cared about us for being a god of relationship uh, lord I, I thank you that the um, you know, entire idea that we can have relationships within families in love with friends with neighbors and it's all based on a god who has been in a relationship for eternity and so we thank you that you father son and spirit are in the most perfect relationship and that you've invited us to be um, in relationship with you. We thank you for your son who died on the cross. And as we come to this season in which we remember his, his birth, we are mindful that, that this son, that this child grew up and he lived a righteous and perfect life. And he lived an example for us to what it, what it looks like to walk in your ways, to be righteous and then died on the cross for our sins so that we might have his righteousness. Then rose from the dead, accomplishing victory. All of this we remember in this season in which we remember his birth. We remember that he came the first time. He came to save. And so as we turn to your word today, and, and in First Peter, we, we're mindful of these truths. I pray that you would teach us as we learn to apply um, this incredible message that Peter gave to these people. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today is the first day of the tradition, the season of, of Advent. Uh, it's a time of year in which we remember our Lord's first coming. And today we, we come to a passage in First Peter which also reminds us of Christ's coming. Uh, we, we know that when Christ came and was born into our world, he didn't, come just to con- he didn't come to conquer, but he came as an infant. He grew into a man who was not welcomed. He was not loved by this world, but he was treated as a foreigner. And this is a message to foreigners, isn't it? This is a message to people who are living in exile, to to a people that had been rejected by the world that was around them. And so this message about Christ coming into the world and, and how he was treated in this world is a comfort both to them and to us. The Son of God was also treated as an exile. It's important that we teach our children about the birth of our Lord and it's also important that we remember in his first coming that we teach them about the righteous life that he lived. It's important that we teach them that he suffered, that he bore our sins so that we might live to righteousness. And so if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me, we're going to start in verse 11 and pick up where we left off three four weeks ago, and where Peter is going to point us to the example that Jesus set, particularly in, in how we apply a lot of these truths that we've been learning so far. Uh, we, we've seen so far that this book was written to elect exiles. I, I've grown to really love that title as, I, as I've studied 1 Peter and seen this letter to these, these people who were going through turmoil and tribulation in their lives. To people who were living as foreigners in a world that was hostile towards our Lord and, and that is hostile towards us. But we're a people who have a home that's waiting for us. And we have a Lord who is returning for us. We have a living hope, as Peter tells us, that is before us, that leads us to changed lives and to holy living. And, and over this, uh, th- we've had a three-week break since we've been in First Peter, but the last time we were in this passage, we read about two illustrations for the Christian life. And First Peter showed us how, how uh, we have been born again to a living hope. We once were dead in our sin But now we have been made alive through the living and abiding word of God. And then secondly, he used this illustration of living stones. It's it's a strange picture, isn't it? You think of living stones, what, what do those look like? And the picture is of this giant temple, and it's built with, with stones one upon the other, and all of them are built on this cornerstone. But, but we are like a building, but not of dead stones, but, but living people, living individuals who are made alive in Jesus Christ, and we are built on Jesus Christ, who is the foundation, who is the cornerstone. And Peter showed us that every human must decide what they are going to do with him. And Jesus, the cornerstone, uh, is the cornerstone for those that that come to him and they fall upon him in their brokenness, and in their brokenness they find grace through Jesus Christ. But for those that stumble over this stone, he's a stone of stumbling, and and in their rejection of the righteous one, they will be crushed. And so as those who have found life in him, we now, he he calls us living stones who are being built up like a temple to glorify our God. And like Jesus, we are living stones. And like Jesus, we will be rejected by men. And we will be elect exiles as this world does not love us and this world hates us. But also like Jesus, we are accepted by God through him. And so therefore, because we have been chosen by God, we not only are the stones that make up the house of God now, we are also the priests within that house who proclaim the message of of our Lord. We proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's this idea of proclaiming his excellencies, the one, proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light It's this concept that takes us into this new section of 1 Peter that we turn to today. If you are born again, if you've been born a second time, not just physically but now spiritually, if you are a living stone that is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ because you fell upon him in repentance rather than stumbled over him, then now we proclaim his excellencies to the world that hates us, to the world that we are exiles in. So the question comes, how do we proclaim these excellencies? How do you proclaim the excellencies of God when the world doesn't want to hear your message, when, when, when they, they hate you? How do we live honorably when the world accuses us of evil? How do we live when we are reviled? Peter answers these questions as he launches into this incredibly practical section and about proclaiming the good news in the midst of our suffering. And first we're going to see that Peter is going to teach us about conduct that will lead our accusers to glorify God in verses 11 through 12. Then he's going to go on into verses 13 to 17 where he's going to teach us about submission that silences the ignorance of fools. And then thirdly, he's going to teach us about unjust suffering that puts grace on display. And I know I've already opened in prayer, but I feel like I'm stumbling over myself and just feel like... um, i'm i'm off on something so we're going to go to the god who answers prayer and whose word this is and i'm just going to ask him for for his help in this time again let's just pray father we thank you for this time once again i i pray that you would fill me with your spirit as i proclaim your word here Um, we come to this book with expectation that that you have life for us and as we live in this world as exiles father i i pray that you would pray that you would help us to see the message that was here for these people 2,000 years ago that is just as vibrant and just as living today. Help us to see how we are called to proclaim your excellencies. I I, I pray that you would open up our eyes and help us to see areas where we might not be doing that, uh, particularly in these ways that Peter has to show us today. Show us where we are not walking in submission. I, I pray that you would show us where we are not Uh, living by your spirit but we are walking according to the flesh i pray that your spirit would convict each one of us that you would help our eyes to see those areas of sin that we've allowed and father might you um, pour out your grace on your people today use your word to change our lives that is our prayer amen well first look with me at verses 11 to 12 where we learn about the conduct that leads our accusers to glorify God. Do you hear that, that, that statement? We learn about our conduct that leads our accusers to then glorify God. There's a, there's a switch here that, that doesn't make sense to the world, but, but listen to what he has to say. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God, glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter returns to this concept that, that he's, he's come back to a few times now of us being sojourners, that we're exiles. Uh, a sojourner is a person who's not at home in this world, uh, is not at home in a culture. Uh, how many of you have been to a foreign country before? Maybe even country that spoke English or otherwise. But h- how did it feel when you got there? Something just you didn't feel? Feel quite right you you didn't belong uh some of you are getting ready to go overseas to to some places and uh there's this there's this tension of i i don't quite belong here i don't know the laws here i don't know what a stop sign looks like here maybe even how do i obey the laws when i when i don't even know what those laws are and and how do i walk in this 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 place that's not my home and that's the picture of, of who we are in, in this world. We are sojourners that are passing through. We are exiles that belong in another place, but, but he's left us here for this time. And it's this concept that he keeps coming back to. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, he called them elect exiles. In verse 17, he reminded them to conduct themselves in fear during their time of exile. And so it's this concept that we, we don't belong. We, we live in the world, but, but it is not our ultimate destination. We're, we're, we're not home yet. And that's the beauty of our, our blessed hope. Jesus is returning for us, and he's going to take us home to a home that he's prepared for us. But again, the question comes, how do we live in the world while we proceed as sojourners? How do we proclaim the good news when that world that we live in just wants us to shut up and stop talking about jesus the first thing he shows us is that we choose to live an honorable way of life there in verse 12 we're we're commanded i'm going to jump ahead just a little bit in verse 12 you see we're commanded to keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable And, and it's that word conduct it, it portrays this idea of, of a certain way of life. It, it was a word that was used in culture that, you know, in, of the Romans, that we have our way of life that you're expected to live. As Christians, we have our conduct, our behavior that we are called to. And it's a behavior that we live out knowing that heaven is our home, that Jesus is our king, and that the conduct embraced by the world is the very thing that wages war against you. And it comes from inside of you. And so Peter urges them, he says, abstain from these passions of the flesh, w- which means to hold back from something. A- and, he, and he says that they're, they're at war against you. Now is, is, is the passage as he writes, is, does it sound like he's saying that, that there's this battle that takes place and, and, and you're going to have this conflict with these, these passions of the flesh, whatever they are? and this this battle takes place and then it's it's done is that kind of what he's describing is that how you feel when you face temptation you got through it and hey it's done and never have to face that again doesn't happen that way does it what he's describing here is a series of battles it's a campaign that wars against you throughout a lifetime and and these struggle the struggle is real and understand that Peter's not just referring, when he says the passions of the flesh, he's not just referring to sexual sin, but to any sinward pull that leads you towards worldly desires. I want you to understand that God created life, and God created life to be enjoyed. Uh, sometimes we miss that. He created life to be enjoyed. He wants us to experience joy as we find our ultimate fulfillment in Him. And He's given so many good things to us in this life. He created sex. But the passions of the flesh beckon us to revel in it by violating the parameters where God created it to be enjoyed freely. He created food. But the passions of the flesh that he describes here beckon us to overindulge or, or to make food the God that satisfies our longings rather than God himself. And we let food satisfy our cravings. These passions of the flesh are what go beyond God's gracious gifts and are what, what call us to all kinds of self-seeking, whether directed towards wealth, power, or pleasure. However, contrasted with these passions of the flesh, God calls us to a different way of life. One that reflects who we are as child, children of of heaven, as sons and daughters of God. But but I want you to notice Peter's point, because this passage isn't just about conduct. He's not just breaking away from everything he's talked about in chapter one and the first part of chapter two to to start a new conversation about our, our way of life in Christ. That's an important element of this passage, but that's not the main point that he's trying to draw our attention to. I want you to remember that he is showing us how God has called us to proclaim the good news in the midst of our suffering. And the first way that we proclaim his excellencies is through this way of life that reflects our citizenship in heaven rather than the passions of the flesh that war against us peter reminds us that we are aliens in this world and as such we will we will be accused as evildoers you'll be accused of evildoers just for being in christ And you don't have to look very far to illustrate this. Uh, Just this week on a national talk show, the Bible was described, quote, a book filled with conspiracy theories and homophobic insults. And evangelical Christians in government were described in the same minute as a bigger threat to the country than Al-Qaeda. That's you. You are a threat to this country because of what you believe the, the truths that the scripture teaches, some of the very truths that are in this passage are well, the ones that were called out in this very same conversation by these same people. We are in a time where your faith and your beliefs in the principles of God's word are considered to be more dangerous than the organization that ran two planes into the World Trade Center. And so what you are doing here today, do you know what a threat that is to the culture that we live in? So what do we do about this? What's, what's, what's our plan of action? Do we, do we go out there and riot? Do we go out there and tell them what for? Is it our job to go make them believe? Well, Peter shows us that the first answer to the accusations of this world and the persecution that they are going to bring against you is to live out an honorable way of life that puts God's grace on display and the result is going to be that they are going to see your good deeds and they will glorify god on the day of visitation and now i looked at this phrase this this day of visitation it's it's used in isaiah and it's used in a couple different ways I, i've always read this passage and assumed that this was talking about when god comes back and jesus comes to judge the living and the dead and so the day of visitation is when he comes to visit us the second time and, and so it's a passage about judgment and they'll glorify god someday when he shows them what they you know teaches them their lesson right and, and, and that's, I think, how oftentimes we read this passage. But, but there's another element to it that I think he's drawing our attention to because that's really not the purpose of the passage, is it? You know, show them your deeds and show them this way of life that God's called you to so that one day they can regret that they—that's not the point, isn't it? It's that they would exalt him, that they would turn around. And I think more likely what Peter's referring to is the day that the Lord visits them. By bringing them mercy. The day of visitation is when he visits them and shows them grace, just like he visited you and showed you mercy on the day that you turned from your sin and you trusted in the God-man, the cornerstone, who died on the cross for your sins. And when they see your deeds, when they see your way of life, no matter what insults they cast against you, no matter what they accuse you of, when they watch your 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 life and your deeds and your actions it will cause them to fall on the same one who you fell on in your repentance your victory over fleshly lusts contrasted in your honorable way of life is the first arena in which the in which you proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and it's those who accuse you of evil that will be some of the very ones who glorify God because your life has proclaimed his marvelous light. Amen? What a beautiful picture. He's going to go on in verse 13 to 17 to describe a second way that we, that we proclaim his marvelous excellencies. Peter then goes on to describe this submission that silences the ignorance of fools. Read with me, verses 13 to 17. He says, be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of god honor everyone love the brotherhood Fear God, honor the emperor. You see, a second way that you proclaim God's excellencies is by submitting yourself to your governing authorities. This idea of submission is is to seek the best for the other individual, that you are seeking what what is best for them, and and particularly in this context of, of governing authorities, the word submit or the verb to be subject carries this idea of ordering yourself under something. You're thinking of someone else better than yourself. You're putting yourself under their leadership, under their authority. In this context, Peter clearly has this idea of living under the order that God has ordained. He mentions the emperor and governors. And and I don't think the principles are hard to grasp here. Uh, They might be hard to apply. So let's just be real about it. Part of proclaiming God's excellencies Means submitting to the rule of President Biden and his administration. Submitting to the laws enacted by our legislatures. It means submitting to the rule of Governor Reynolds and her administration, submitting to the laws of Iowa, submitting to the police officers, living under the order that God has ordained. Daniel uh, had in, in the book of Daniel proclaimed that that god raises up kings and he brings kings down god's the one that's ov- over all of it god is the one that's in authority and he's the one who raises them up he's the one that replaces them he's the one that tears a nation down you know obviously submitting to every human institution doesn't mean that we we must obey uh, ungodly laws i think we have some examples of that in scripture uh you remember shadrach meshach and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his his friends in that instance as well. Daniel and his friends they refused to obey King Nebuchadnezzar when he commanded them to sin. To violate their own laws that God had given to them. Or when they were commanded to worship and bow down before an image that that Nebuchadnezzar had created. And so they couldn't obey and they told the king this. But do you notice that they still submitted to him? And they still said, oh king, we, we can't do what you told us to do. But they were willing to submit themselves to his rule and even to the penalty for their disobedience, even if it meant death. Peter himself. I, I was thinking about uh, Peter as, as we read this book and as we read this passage. Do you remember some instances where Peter maybe have struggled with this? We, we find a couple places where Peter is interacting with tax law, even to the point that Jesus sends him out and he finds a coin in a fish's mouth. Remember that? Remember in the garden? Who was it that had a sword of all the disciples? It was Peter. And then when the governing authorities came to arrest Jesus, and uh, Peter really got the idea, I'm supposed to submit to these guys. And, and what did he do? <laughs> no, he chopped a guy's ear off. So, so this is Peter writing this to us. And, and, and I think he understands that the struggle is real and that sometimes this is hard. Sometimes you look at, at, at the world around you and you go, ah, these are the leaders I'm supposed to follow and submit to? So Peter himself wrote this epistle, he, ref- he refused later on after that instance in the garden. There's another instance where he also refuses to obey, and I think it was Peter and John, right? A- and they were commanded by their leaders, stop talking about Jesus. And did they obey? Well, they said, we can't obey you. We have to obey God rather than men. They applied that same principle that we found in Daniel. But what did they do? Did they run away? Did they get the sword out again? Did he pummel them with a club? They submitted. They, said they, they were willing to suffer the consequences. Now, it gets interesting because an angel comes and, and opens the gate for them, and they end up leaving the jail at night after, well, he has to kick them to wake them up, but, but they, they move on, and, and so it's, it's an interesting dynamic there, but, but they submitted to the consequences for their disobedience. And so submission does not mean that you can't vote. It doesn't mean that you, you cannot follow lawful ways to protest injustice. Or unjust laws, it doesn't mean that you don't have a voice. However, these exceptions where we have to choose between obeying God and obeying men uh, are not the norm for everyday life, at least the norm of everyday decisions that you make on the daily basis. Under normal circumstances, the choice we usually have to make is whether I want to submit to my leaders or whether I want to gratify my own desires and live by my laws and that's not what he described in these verses previous to this is it we're commanded to show honor to those that god has put over us we're to pray for our president and for our other leaders and, and i just want to be real with you and i, I you know, there's a tension here isn't there because obviously there are some leaders that you really agree with and some leaders that you don't there's some that are in between um few years ago that the chant was not my president i hated it thought it was horrible because it dishonored the office uh, of uh, of the leader of our land today the chant is something worse than that but somehow it's okay for christians to say some of those things and that directly contradicts what we're commanded to in this passage that is not submitting to our leaders that is not submitting to our president and, and honoring those that God has put over us. The very last phrase in this section we just read, honor the emperor. Well, who is that? I was a little convicted this week myself. I, I, um, you know, every once in a while, just kind of flip through my phone, you know, watching videos on YouTube or Facebook or whatever it is. You scroll through some things. And one of the things that comes up very often are some of our leaders, uh, our president, saying things. And, and my attitude oftentimes is is I stop for those because i I enjoy laughing right And I was convicted as I was preaching as I was preaching this message uh, right now but also preparing this that that's not right for me to do now now it doesn't mean I can't vote and and can't have a voice but when i when i see the failures of leaders and sometimes the ridiculousness of of some of our leaders and the way that they behave and the way that they act i'm called to honor the emperor and, and that includes the president of my country it in- includes my senators it includes my governor the police officers chief porter the very people that we interact locally and statewide and nationally to pray for them. But again, I want you to notice the objective here. I, the, the idea here, is, Peter's not just saying this so that you just live a different rule of life, or just make it difficult for you because he knows you're going to disagree with some of your government leaders. There's an objective here. You, you see, government has two primary objectives that, that are listed here in this passage, and you'll find them elsewhere in Scripture. But basically, to punish evil and to, raise, to, to praise those who do good. Th- those are the two primary reasons that government exists there's lots of other things in the midst of that but to punish evil and to praise those who do what's good And, and this isn't just a passage about civic responsibility but peter's objective is that we would proclaim the excellencies of our great god and the second way he describes is through our doing what is good and i can't do that when i'm laughing at the ones i'm supposed to be praying about can't do that when i'm mocking my leaders i can't do that when i'm rebelling and acting in a way that is contrary to what i find here this isn't to say that you shouldn't get involved in government i'm going a little off script here Th- there are many ways that we can get involved in these things many ways that we can bring about change many ways that you can express your voice and you should and you we need to whether we voted for the people or not we should hold them accountable because we live in that system that allows us to do that but we need to do all that in a way that honors what our god has commanded us to do here and leads us to proclaim his excellencies rather than to make our king jesus look bad second way that he describes that we proclaim his excellencies is through our doing what is good so that when the leaders who are supposed to praise good rather than to penalize evil they see your good and I hear people all the time that they, 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 they say that they wish God would tell them his will for their life you know I just wish God would tell me what I'm supposed to do and usually when they say that they want a, a letter from God that says go to this college buy that car go to that car salesman This is the house I have for you. Wouldn't that be great? That's usually some of the specifics that people want. But I find it amazing that right here he explicitly says, this is the will of God. Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? Well, he's going to tell you one major part of it right here. This is the will of God. Submitting to President Biden. Submitting to Governor Reynolds. Submitting to Chief Porter and his forces. This is God's will for your life his will is that by doing good, even in the midst of the tension of all the politics and all how that works, in the midst of all of that, that your doing good will silence the ignorance of foolish people. If you want to silence ignorance, we usually think there's one way of doing that. But God has another. Once again, I think there's a more to this than just causing fools to shut their trap. The greatest ignorance that we know of Is the same ignorance that we were once in the ignorance of foolish people that's displayed by their rejection of God's grace and once again your good deeds especially in the context of submitting to your governing leaders will often be the very thing that ends their ignorance when they repent of their sin and they turn to the God man who died on the cross for their sin there's a third lesson Peter teaches us about proclaiming the good news in the midst of our suffering. He also wants us to understand that unjust suffering puts God's grace on display, and it's in a very unique way. Look at verses 18 through 25. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, as Peter continues this section on submission, he, he's gonna move from, from government authorities and submitting to our government authorities, and he's gonna move to the arena of, of slaves. Now, that doesn't probably quite resonate with some of you might feel like it, right? But but we live in a culture where m- most of us are not owned by another individual, at least not on paper. Now, in the Roman world, there, there were likely many individuals in these churches that Peter's writing to that were in a social, social situation, that they were actually owned by another person. Their life belonged to another individual. And, and some of them had good masters that were Gentile. Gentle, they were Gentiles too, but gentle. And treated them fairly. And many of them had the opposite of this. And they were going through horrible suffering because of it. And some of them, because they had become to know Christ, that increased their suffering as a slave. And you also need to understand that slavery in the first century was not the equivalent of, of poverty and abuse. It, it wasn't typically what we think of as of slavery in, in our culture, in our, in our country as it used to be. Um, slavery didn't necessarily mean that you were in poverty didn't necessarily mean that you were abused in the roman culture for some it was and it was acceptable and you belonged to another individual and so if they chose to treat you that way it was it was not looked down on in that culture but many slaves had comfortable lives many slaves were doctors and physicians and even had great wealth that was their own and belonged to them within that slave that system of slavery and we've discussed before in in a couple other passages that, that christianity changes culture as lives are transformed and the world oftentimes learns to value a better way and i I think slavery in the world is is one illustration of that there there are many forms of slavery some that still exist even here in our country as we look at human trafficking but there are many forms of slavery um, that have been abolished because of the transforming work of christ in this world look at the abolition movement that happened in the 18, 1700s and the 1800s. Um, a lot of that was a result of the church impacting its culture. A- and so many of these forms of slavery have, have ceased to exist in, in maybe the form that they were in. But Peter's objective here was not to stir up a revolution among his audience. He, he's not trying to get them to... Um, To bring about a a revolt that's going to end up with the slaughter of the very people that he's writing to and so he addresses the people in the circumstances in which they lived in which they were bound and which they were to hold to in verse 18 god commands slaves to be subject to their masters even the ones who are unjust now that's kind of hard for us isn't it because we oh boy that's why would god command that well you might have some circumstances where he's commanding the same thing of you and it might make a little more sense if you think of it from that perspective. But in verse 18, he commands the slaves to be subject to their masters. H- however, it's verse 19 that, that for me, feels counterintuitive. I, I read it and I go, what? What Peter say? Verse 19 is just as crazy as the statement back in chapter 1 where he stated that we rejoice when we are grieved by various trials. Do you remember that one? Rejoice in suffering? Who is this guy, you know? I, I remember the Peter that used to open his mouth all the time, and you know, it, didn't, it didn't seem like a guy who was going to rejoice in suffering. God transformed his life over those years. And, and yes, that's what he commands. And, and here he says, in verse 19, it's another statement. Here he commands slaves to m- submit to their master, and then he says this, for this is a gracious thing. Doesn't that sound off to us, at least? What? This is gracious? This is literally, he says, for this is grace. This is a good thing. And here's the idea that Peter is conveying. This is an attractive thing. Now it's not the, the unjustness and the unjust suffering that's attractive. But what is grace, what is attractive in the eyes of God, is that God. Finds it an attractive quality when a believing slave is more concerned about his behavior, proclaims God's excellencies, than he is concerned about his own hardships. Howard Marshall wrote, Unlike Paul, who taught mainly slaves with Christian masters, Peter is concerned here with slaves working in the homes of pagan masters. And so he's kind of addressing a different audience than, than Paul does in his epistles. In a Christian household, the the close contact of slaves and masters could lead to brotherhood. In a pagan household, this familiarity increased the possibilities of friction, especially if Christian slaves, who now believed themselves spiritually equal to their masters, tried to force their position. Whatever their situation, he continues, Christian slaves should fulfill their obligation to be subject to their masters. Whether their masters are gentle or perverse is not the point. The relationship demands obedience. Now, Peter is addressing this to slaves who were hearing this, but then he kind of moves into application that that overflows out of that, and he specifically is still addressing slaves, but but he starts to address everybody that's suffering unjustly. And the application goes out to to everybody that was hearing this letter and to us 2,000 years later. I think that we can apply this to our own modern context many of you work in places where you may feel like a slave Um, you may work for bosses and managers who are unjust and harsh and sometimes there's there's not an avenue of of correcting that behavior or going to supervisors or dealing with things in a way that would make it a better situation for you there are many of you who are ill treated in the workplace and it's not to say that you can never seek change, that you can never defend yourself, that there are appropriate times and places for this. I remember one time uh, I had a particularly brutal master uh, in the restaurant industry. He was a young guy, uh, um, you know, 24, 25 years old, and he had a horrible temper. And uh, for some of my good friends, he would throw chairs across the restaurant and yell at them and shout profanities. There was sexual abuse, there was verbal abuse, he would encourage people to clock out so that they could save their time, but that he wouldn't have to pay them. I, I, it, it just went on and on. And, and he was just an assistant manager. And and I was I was in a position where I was the, um, um, the the trainer. I was one of the trainers for the entire staff. And so I was supposed to be the liaison between the managers and all the staff members. And, and I had person after person after person come and talk to me. And Finally, it came to a point I, I had to do something about it. So there is a place, and so I wrote a letter, and I went to not his boss but my boss's boss and uh, went to the highest person in our entire region that oversaw the entire state of Texas and Oklahoma because it had to be dealt with. And so there was an avenue for doing that. I was very thankful for it, and it was handled quite well. But that's not always a possibility, is it? Sometimes you find yourself in a spot where you're, you're, you're in a horrible situation, This is to say, though, that we are called to love our unjust bosses more than we love our own comfort and even our own well being. The salvation of our co workers must be a higher priority for us than whether or not I mistreated even. Ultimately, Peter's point is that when you do what is right and then you suffer for it, this thing commends you in god's sight and he is pleased he says it's grace this is good god sees you enduring under suffering for what you've done that is good and he's pleased with you that you've entrusted yourself to him and then peter brings us back around to the first coming of our lord not specifically to his birth but to the pattern of life that jesus set for us in his suffering in his righteous life that he lived And his example to you Remember that he lived righteously Jesus lived Not just as a baby Not just as a man In those three years of ministry But his entire life He lived in righteousness A life without sin A life without deceit His was a perfect life Without transgression But this world rejected him And then this world crucified him and jesus could have proclaimed his excellencies right there couldn't he can you think of some ways that jesus could have proclaimed his excellencies to a world in darkness i mean he could have let him have it he could have called down the angels of heaven he could said this ends right here i'm not going through any more of this And, and he could have ended everything he could have allowed his glory to burst out of that humble skin and he would have had been just in carrying out his wrath against this ungodly world but instead when he was reviled he did not revile in return he did not threaten but he trusted himself to his father furthermore this god who took on human flesh this child that grew into a man and lived righteously even bore our sins his death for us proclaimed the excellencies of God for it was his death that allowed us to die to our sin and to live to his righteousness. He actually gave his righteousness to us because he took our sin upon himself. He healed us through his own suffering. And and Peter says this is a beautiful example that our Savior has given to us, that our Savior has set for us so that we also might learn to endure under suffering with perspective that someone else is more important than my own rights. Someone else's salvation is a greater priority than whether my honor is maintained. And so you see, we are living stones. We are being built up as the household of God. And then we also are those within the house that proclaim his excellencies. And so the temporary suffering that we experience in this world is a small thing compared to the opportunity to proclaim what a great God you serve. When we're insulted, God is glorified because we walk in a more honorable way. Whether or not our leaders are worthy of being followed, whether or not they're worthy of leading, our submission ultimately silences the ignorance of the fool, of the foolish. And when we honor others, even when they do not deserve it, it is our God whose excellencies become known. And when we are mistreated for doing good, we entrust ourselves to our Father in heaven, even as Jesus did so when he went to the cross. And then we delight the one who redeemed us and caused us to be born again. J.I. Packer wrote, It's a paradox of the Christian life. That, more profoundly, that the more profoundly one is concerned about heaven, the more deeply one cares about God's will being done on earth. Let me say that again. It is a paradox of the Christian life that the more profoundly one is concerned about heaven, the more deeply one cares about God's will being done on earth. And it was Stephen Cole that preached, the great goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus. That sounds wonderful. Until we realize that being like Jesus means submitting to proper authority, even if it's unjust. It means submitting to please God and to bear witness to the lost. If we put our trust in God, he will look out for us and right all the wrongs. It's true. Life is not fair. But thank God that Jesus endured unfair treatment on our behalf by bearing our sins so that we could receive eternal life as the men come forward this morning for today's communion let's go to our god in prayer father in heaven we thank you for your son who lived out this incredible example who came and who lived a righteous life who lived perfectly and then was crucified and suffered so that he might take our sin upon himself and might give to us his righteousness. Father, I pray that as we leave here today, before that, as we celebrate in communion and, and remember this death, remember the spilling of his blood that was done for us, might, might this be a time that we remember what he did, but it all, might it also be a time of reflection for us as we look on the, the great gift that you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so Lord, please. Honor yourself now in this time as we come to your table.